Welcome to the Glorious Professionals Podcast brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason McCarthy. Let's dig in. I remember how I felt on 9-11-2001 as I watched in horror as the Twin Towers burned and collapsed. I remember wanting revenge. Plain and simple, I wanted to bring justice to those responsible for such evil and cowardly acts of terror. Then, a short time later, on the ground in Afghanistan, we were given the opportunity to help bring payback to the Taliban. We were not there to bring the Afghan people out of their third world ways or to build a free society. We were there to collect payment due for the loss of American lives inflicted on 9-11, period. But as the days went on, something began to change in my mind. As the Taliban retreated and became fewer and further between, I found myself paying more attention to the Afghan people. They cheered for the Americans who were crazy enough to stand up to their oppressors. And the children were now happily playing outside, smiling and waving as we went about our business. It was then that a new feeling started to replace the anger I was holding on to. Hope. It soon became clear to me that the Afghani people now had so much more than before our arrival a short time ago. With the Taliban, who once owned and occupied the cities and surrounding areas, dead or hiding, the Afghan people could begin to live their lives without fear. They could now decide for themselves what to teach their children, and their daughters could attend school for the very first time in a lifetime. They could decide what books to read. They could fly a kite. Things that seemed so trivial and entitled to Westerners and Americans were so very shiny and new to these people. They were extremely grateful and happy with their newfound freedoms. After a few more years, we went on to give them an elected government as an alternative to being ruled by an iron fist. The Afghan people had come so far, so fast, and we were glad to give them these amazing gifts. And through all the American blood, sweat, and tears, we hoped we had done enough to create a new democracy on the planet. But now, 20 years on, just weeks from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we are leaving Afghanistan, and it appears as though our extraordinary efforts may have been in vain. It's difficult for me not to feel a sense of failure with the speed of the capture of the Afghan capital Kabul and the fleeing of their president from the country. It seems as if those who we have given their freedom to are simply not willing to fight for it, and that, to me, is truly sad. Many Americans gave their lives, Many more Americans have returned home from Afghanistan with serious physical and emotional disabilities. Daily reminders of the battles they fought in the streets, villages, and mountains of Afghanistan. Once again, under Taliban rule, there will be no more freedom to vote, to practice a different religion, to love the person they choose. Females once again will be treated no better than animals. It's infuriating even to think about. But... Remember what the Taliban did when Americans first arrived. When they realized they were outgunned, they fled. They blended in with the population. They hid. They planned and they organized in secret. They took to the caves and they waited. They knew if they played our game, they would lose every single fighter they had, and they would lose quickly. The Taliban did what Afghans have done for centuries. And while this seems strange, even cowardly to Westerners, Guerrilla-type fighting is very effective against larger forces and technologically advanced invaders. Afghanistan has been playing the long game throughout history, and they are exceedingly good at it. No empire that has tried to lay claim there has ever succeeded. Not one. And so, the Taliban took the lessons of their predecessors and used them to their advantage. They waited. Now, 20 years later with the American withdrawal, the Taliban have come back to take back what we took from them. The major difference is that now, after two decades of American military presence, Afghanis have had a powerful taste of freedom. They have seen true happiness in their children's eyes and felt great pride in standing up their own government. For better or worse, 
we have planted a seed in Afghanistan, the seed of freedom. That seed may yet grow to become a towering tree of liberty. But here's the stone cold truth about freedom. Something so precious as freedom cannot simply be given to others. It must first be earned if it is to be cherished and then carefully handed down generation to generation as it has been done here in America. It is said to those who have fought for it, freedom has a flavor that the protected will never know. I believe this to be true. The Afghan people will now need to decide for themselves what their freedom is worth to them. Those who witness firsthand the taste of freedom are the vast many, and the Taliban are the very few. As of now, the Taliban have control once again, and that is one hell of a tough pill to swallow. But again, the tiny seed we have planted there may still become a giant tree in time, and it may take a long time. But remember, Afghanistan plays the long game, and they are exceptionally good at it. Do not be surprised to see the Afghan people taking a play straight out of the Taliban playbook. They can wait and shine the light of freedom in dark places and use that light to read to their children about freedom and teach their daughters how to read and write in secret until the time is right for that tiny seed to become their very own magnificent tree of liberty. No one can predict the future, and things are far from easy to be happy about right now. It's hard to say what happens next or how it might end for the good people of Afghanistan. But as for me, after seeing what I've seen, I'm always going to bet on freedom to win out in the end. They oppress only bear to free the oppressed. So, Rich and I are here in the Champagne Room in Jacks Beach, Florida, and today our guests are good friend Aaron Hand, former Ranger Battalion soldier turned Green Beret. Both Aaron and Rich were in Mogadishu in 1993, and we've been wanting to get Aaron on for a while, in person, to tell that story. But now, with the fall of Kabul, today it's all about Afghanistan. A little background info. Aaron grew up in Boston, joined the Army in 1993, and was stationed at 3rd of the 75th Ranger Battalion at Fort Benning as a sniper. He was part of the vehicle convoy in Black Hawk Down, Mogadishu, then returned stateside and went to the Special Forces Qualification Course and was stationed at 5th Special Forces Group in late 1999. Rich is always non about 5th Special Forces Group. They're known as the Legion, of course. <laughs> and, and Rich is also a proud member of the Legion, dating back to, to his days in, in Vietnam. Aaron deployed to Uzbekistan in October of 2001. Afghanistan Operation Enduring Freedom, 1 November 2001, Task Force Dagger. And Rich, for some additional context, was one of the Special Forces soldiers sent in in 1975 for the fall of Saigon. And he spent some time in Afghanistan in the 1980s notably in Charlie Wilson's war, carrying Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen. So we have a lot of relevant experience and perspective between these two guys right here. Aaron, I read, you know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of guys, you know, I, di I didn't serve in Afghanistan. And so it's, it's kind of like, I, I care a lot more what other people have to say than what I have to say, right? Like you, you were there. I read what you wrote and I was just like, damn, that's what's up. What, what's going on in your head right now? You know, Jason, uh, just like everyone else, we're watching, um, what's going on on TV and the news. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put a positive spin on any of that. And, you know, I know I've got many, many service members out there thinking what is going on? What was it all for? You know, what have we done? Uh, it doesn't look great, uh, at this point. And I'm guessing between now and a couple of weeks from now, we're going to get some more bad news. That's just me trying to be realistic. But, um, I was up the other night, Tossing and turning, I guess, just thinking about it. And I thought, what's the big picture here? I mean, were we ever really supposed to be there forever? And 
isn't it kind of their baton to pick up at some point? And I thought I might write a little bit about that. So did you write that in the middle of the night? Yeah. Yeah. It was about three o'clock in the morning and I, uh, I couldn't get to sleep. I had to work in about three hours. I said, screw it. I'm going to write it down because otherwise I'm just going to lay here and look at the ceiling. Did you feel kind of better? Much. Yeah. I slept like a baby for two hours <laughs> after that. <laughs> All right. So I want to get to in time today. I want to talk with Rich a little bit about Fall of Saigon. Then I want to kind of fast forward to today and how that mirrors and get both your perspectives. But I also want to talk about Task Force Dagger out of the gates. You know, you, you joined Special Forces. You obviously had a significant combat experience in, in Mogadishu with Ranger Battalion. You went through the Special Forces qualification course. Some would call it good timing that you showed up at group in 1999. And, you know, if the towers are going to fall, you want to be serving in 5th Special Forces group in 2001, which of course you were. So talk to us about your, you know, what was that frenzy like right after 9-11? Yeah, that was, um, I guess, about as fortunate as, as a person could be who wanted to um, get some payback. Yeah, Sitting in our team room at Fort Campbell doing team type stuff and watching that stuff on TV wasn't very long before we were packing our stuff up, put it that way. And um, we had to go through a few places to get there first. And um, when we first air landed into Afghanistan, we actually were at Objective Rhino that the Rangers took. It was a small all-weather airstrip, and we air-landed there as a team. Our mission was to link up with uh, General Mad Dog Maddox and um, bring him and his uh, several Marines uh, to Kandahar Airport and make that into a workable airfield so that follow-on forces could come in and uh, obviously occupy. And once we got there, you know, we became his eyes and ears, so to speak, reaching out and linking up with the, I guess, Northern Alliance, as we called them, uh, the friendlies in the area, getting intel from them, um, helping them to um, establish the new government in, in Kandahar. So your first, I mean, you flew through Uzbekistan, I mean, mission prep, all that kind of stuff. And you're just, the guy's just frothing at the mouths to get over to Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. Yes. We were, uh, we were pumped up. We were ready to go. We had the training, we had the equipment. We just needed the mission. Give us the five W's and we're gone. So what was that like when you got the mission and it's like, no shit, you're going to Afghanistan. It's October of 2001. Well, on that day, again, it was a little while to get there. We uh, First trip we took was to try to get close. We ended up in Egypt at a Bright Star exercise that had been going on. And um, that closed out. We were kind of stuck without a place to live. So we got put up in some five-star hotels in Cairo. That didn't last too long from there to Jordan, Jordan to Uzbekistan. We didn't really know what was going on from day to day because things were moving so fast, but we knew we were going in pretty soon. And uh, when we did get the chance, we were ready. Okay, so what was your sort of staging ground? I mean, once you got there, Northern Alliance, and so, sort of for reference, the word special forces has been thrown thrown around a lot in the last 20 years. And in, in essence, the Green Berets, the classic mission is work by, with, and through local partner forces in order to achieve your mission. So in this case, it wasn't just Green Berets against the Taliban. It was, hey, Green Berets with CIA case officers and ground branch types link up with the Northern Alliance, who are the, the sworn enemies of the Taliban, and work by, with, and through them in order to defeat the Taliban. 
And and that that's kind of the force multiplier way to to tackle an insurgency by kind of behaving like one yourself. And so who were you working with? What what were those exchanges like? Initially, we uh, air landed into Afghanistan. We saw no no friendly Afghanis at that point. The the base had been secured by the Rangers and was now being occupied by a small Marine force. From there, we convoyed with several vehicles uh, hundreds of miles south into Kandahar. Again, not linking up with any friendly forces until we got to Kandahar. And uh, linking up with those friendly forces was essential because that was now our initial intel to be able to reach out, find the bad guys, find the the no-go areas, and help them essentially uh, to take back their country. Okay, so what was the what was the battle rhythm like once you got there? Very fast, uh, very furious. Things were happening. I mean, I don't know if you were up on how quickly that country fell. The Army, the DOD, they had no expectation of SF teams being able to basically rid the country of the Taliban alone. They thought we could probably hold some ground, maybe make a few, you know, pockets of resistance while they could get the big guys in, the 101st, the 82nd, and all of that. But before they even got there, we were done. Right. So, you know, uh, Hamid Karzai was sworn in as the as the president of Afghanistan, and the Taliban were out in their own way. They were out, right? In retreat, which, which you also wrote about. Right. But within probably, I'm going to say within probably one to two months, the place, the place was a ghost town. No, no Taliban. Pakistan was a, was a, I guess, sort of like you when you play tag when you're a child and you get on base and you say, you can't get me here. So for us, I know others were in uh, caves up uh, further north in mountains, but for us in the south, the quickest way to hide from Kandahar would be to get into Spinbaldak, to get into southern Pakistan. Okay, so when you were when you were down there, I mean, how'd your mission set evolve? What were the kinetic operations, and and what were the kind of goals of those? I mean, I get it. There's bad guys. Go get them. But what sort of role were you guys playing? Well, it was traditional SF stuff. Um, we linked up with some some friendly um, forces who were in the Afghan army. We gave them the tools that they needed. Without, I mean, I I don't honestly know what all types of information can be said at this point, but we gave them the tools that they needed to accomplish the missions that they needed to accomplish, which was air power to some extent. Um, Obviously, we had Air Force, CCT, combat controller, and we were able to use ourselves as a force multiplier to drop large bombs on uh, pockets of resistance and then move forward and occupy uh, that territory. And so, Quickly, quickly, I mean, honestly, like you would think, hey, let's go and plan a mission and let's get hand. You're going to go over here, set up a block position, or we're going to take down this particular block or city. It moved much, much faster than that. Basically, all of the Northern Alliance needed was a nudge, our air power and our eyes and our intel to make it happen. And we let them do it by themselves pretty much other than, you know, hey, good job, brother. What else do you need from us? So you would describe your partner force as highly motivated. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. They were they were very happy to see us. 
So how did the, the trust building go? I'm assuming that, you know, you, you verified with the Air Force and they were like, yeah, we want you on our team. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it almost went just like Robin Sage. I mean, a little nervous meet and greet. You're eating a goat with the eyeball still looking at you, you know. Everybody's gathered around and breaking bread. And to them, you know, maybe that's a month's worth of food, but they're willing to give it to you because uh, that's their culture, you know. A few, a few uh, trust exercises later, you know, we had to uh, follow a few people around just to make sure they didn't go out and give the intel to somebody who didn't need it. We were able to verify that these people were indeed friendly to us. And from that point, we believed and trusted the intel that they gave us. And that became actionable intelligence, which we could act on. So what were the, what were the kind of bonds that you developed with those, the, the Northern Alliance soldiers and then kind of transition to what you saw with the, the local population at that time? Well, working in day in, day out with the Northern Alliance, you do develop quite a bond. I'm not going to say the same exact brotherhood as you would with your, with your SF counterparts, but, but a strong bond nonetheless. Uh, you know, you fight alongside these people and, and you bleed together. So that's, that's a, that's a strong, I guess, yeah, you would say a brotherhood. And, um, the Afghan people are very friendly people, very simple people, farmers, if you will, maybe as if you, and you could imagine just people who they don't know the politics of the world. They don't much care. They don't know who the president of their country is or much less the governor of their region. Um, they're very family-based, very tribal-based. One of the things I saw in Afghanistan that, you know, really blew my mind and uh, made me think that in some ways they, they have it better than we do is you, you will see a village and it would contain um, children, you know, running and playing. Of course, all their cousins are all in the same village. Their uncles, aunts, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, the whole enchilada is there. They don't have old folks' homes. Everybody's there. You know, and I thought this is this is they take care of their elders because I guess no one else will. But um, I, I thought that was I thought that was amazing. And they were very, very friendly to us. Like I said, they give you their their last bit of food and they didn't have much. Just a friendly, friendly type of people. So what was the sort of burqa situation in, in Kandahar or, or around? Well, um, when we were there again, this is uh, late 2001, early 2002. I can't speak for if that changed, but yes, women, girls wore the total body, you know, outfit. And it was almost as if the only way you could tell their age is by looking at their feet, really. Mm. And that was just a guess. Mm. So what was the, what was the low point of that task force dagger experience for you? Well, um, on our way in, we got word again, this was uh, just as we were coming into Camp Rhino up north that one of some of the first special forces casualties, um, were reported it was a uh, a joint uh, JDAM that was a 500-pound bomb that was dropped on friendly position, injuring several and killing a few of our of our SF comrades. And uh, we knew that was our kind of going in point. So uh, that was that was not pleasant. You know, we didn't have eyes on the ground, or you know, I mean, you get intel is sketchy when you're moving forward into unknown territory. And the first thing we got is, hey, we're going in. There's been some guys, you know, blown up. We didn't actually even know that it was an accidental drop at the time. That kind of fired us up even more. Let's get in there, you know. Uh, they need us. 
Yeah, I mean, the goal is like run to the guns, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you want to get in faster to support what's going on. And, and the hope is that in the last 20 years, the sort of run of the guns mentality that special forces and a lot of the, the infantry units have had over there will, will rub off. And I hope that you're right in terms of the, the soldiers over there have seen what they've seen and the people have tasted what they've tasted. And it's, it's going to take more than, you know, a couple more big thoughts on online over here to, to see how this actually plays out. Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, this is a, this is a hope of mine to, you know, look back, let's look at the big picture and say, what was the initial mission? What were we there for? Were we there to bring Afghan into, uh, to make it a Germany, to make it a Japan? No. Could we even do that if we wanted to? There's not a lot of infrastructure. I'm going to tell you that in region by region, they don't really care, you know, one way or the other who's in charge because, you know, there are not railroads. There are not planes and trains and automobiles. There are dirt roads. You know, people stay, they grow up, they die where they were born, plus or minus. So making that type of country, and I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, but a place like Vietnam into a, a westernized civilization is, is almost impossible to begin with. So were we ever really going to stay there forever? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think it had to have an end point at some point. Saying that doesn't mean that I'm justifying what we're seeing now, because I don't, nobody wants to see how this is going down. Uh, we could have hoped for a much smoother transition, but it had to be a transition at some point, I believe. It's not that we're leaving, it's how we're leaving. Right. All right, so Rich, I mean, we were, we were just shooting the breeze the other day it scars and you walked when you first walked in you're like this is just deja vu i'm just living through the fall of saigon again yeah walk us through that well it's it it was amazing to watch and i i found it very interesting listening to aaron just now to talk about the the afghani people and their their friendliness their their cooperation their desires that mirrors the people that i worked with in vietnam the, the Montagnards and, and the Vietnamese, they were very open. They were, they were very desirous of our support. And there came a time when the, the political decision was made. It was probably influenced by the military situation, but the political decision was made to leave. And when everybody's just dropped what they were doing, and that's basically what's, what's happened in Afghanistan, and total chaos reigns. It's an unbelievable situation. You have a, in, in my case, we had a mission. We had to go in and we had to find very specific people that were located at very specific sites. So walk us through how, out. walk us through in, in some additional details, kind of what that was. My team in the late mid or mid seventies, my team had done some work with other government agencies and we were posted to them to assist in recovering people and uh, people in Afghanistan have been identified as people that have worked with us that we want to get out. We want to give them a safe refuge to move to. And so these same people that we were addressing in Vietnam, the issue has been addressed with the Afghanis. Now, whether they're going to be able to get all of them out, that's a very questionable situation at this point in my mind. I hope they can get at least a majority of them out, if not all of them. We got a majority of the people out that we were told to get out in, in Vietnam in 1975. So my team had worked with this other government agency. We'd been identified, and so they brought us back together again. 
and sent us to Vietnam because we had had practiced this. We had we had looked at and we had input on how we would go about extracting these people during a total collapse. And that's that's what exactly what happened. That's what's now happened in Afghanistan. So d- describe the vibe, though, in Saigon. I mean, you get there, and what was it like in 1970? I mean, you'd already done two tours, right? Pe- people were, yeah, I'd been there before, and it, it was always vibrant. It was always busy. There was always people in the street. But this time, it was different. Prior, people had missions. People had reasons to be on the street. They were shopping. They were going to see friends. They were going out to do things. They were going out to dinner. They had a mission, in quotes, not a military mission, just something for them to do. And so they would do that. And so they were always, there was always a bustle about the city. It was always a busy city. When we got there, there was people in the streets, and it was just utter confusion because the people were confused. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't understand what the Americans were doing. They could see the helicopters landing on rooftops of various buildings in Saigon, picking up people and and taking them away. So they knew there was something going on. They just didn't know what. They knew the North Vietnamese were approaching. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know what they were doing. Nobody expected it to happen quite as quickly as it did. The exact same mirror image happened in Kabul uh, when... I'm not going to say it was an intel breakdown, but it was, in my mind, it's questionable as to whether everybody had looked at all the facts that were available at the time and made good decisions about how they were going to get people out, whether they had actually laid down mission planning efforts to ensure that it was an orderly withdrawal. This was not, in my mind, an orderly withdrawal when 15,000 people charged the Hamid Karzai airport uh, trying to get out. That's not an orderly withdrawal by any means. But we were seeing the same thing with the civilian populace in Vietnam, in Saigon, that they were just, they were confused, they were scared, they were, they were ter- in some cases, terrified because they envisioned that the, the North Vietnamese, Vietnamese were going to come in and conduct wholesale slaughter, which they didn't do, although they did arrest a lot of people and put them in concentration camps or, or prisoner camps and held them for years. And I think we're going to see probably some of the same stuff go on in Kabul. People are, are being stopped at checkpoints and asked for their telephones. And if there's an English translation on the telephone, boom, they're gone. What was the airport like in Saigon on your uh, way out? Tonsonut was, was crazy. We didn't even try to use Tonsonut. We used a, a, an airport on the northern edge that, that was a very rough airport. It was just a, a real simple strip because Tonsonut was unusable because people had traveled there just like they did at the international airport in Kabul. The, the, just like they did to the, the soon-to-be formerly named Hamid Karzai International yeah, Airport. Exactly, exactly. And Sucks. so they, people just, there were so many people there, they couldn't land airplanes, they couldn't take them off because people are standing in the middle of the runway looking for a way out. Very few airplanes on the ground and none can land because they're standing in the runways. We passed by it twice uh, as we collected people. And you could just, you could see the throngs of people standing there gathered at the airport, Tonsonut, that wanted to get out, that were desperate to find a way out of Vietnam because of what they perceived was coming. What kind of aircraft were you in? Uh, we used some other government agency aircraft. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of C-123s. There were some C-130s that, that came out of an offshore airfield. 
the ones we'd used for Mac v. Sog basically were the same ones we were using. And how many people did you sort of get out total? Uh, we got out, I think it was 74, 74 people. And, and were there more, there were more teams Yes. Besides yours. Yeah. There was two other teams besides us. Yeah. That's, that's and, the grand sum of that is not a lot of people though. No, it, it isn't. But these were, these were very yeah. specific people that somebody had designated, not us, uh, had designated that they wanted out. We've done basically the same thing in Afghanistan, as my understanding is that there are certain folks that we certainly want to help and bring them out because they did in fact help us during the last 20 years or more actually far more than 20 years, but I, I, I don't know who they are or, or how many there is. So Aaron, when you see the airport in Kabul and you see just the chaos, yeah, I see your face and you just took like a deep swallow and you've got this enormous lump in your throat, as I, as I mentioned that. And like you see these people there. First off, I, I know the answer is yes. How big is the part inside of you that's like, man, if, if I could just have a special forces team and, and a gunship right now, and the Taliban is concentrated there, the leadership, and we could do a lot of good. Like, how big is the part of you that says that would be a, a great use of your time? Oh, I would do it. <laughs> I've been retired for about 10 years, but I, I think I could still do it. <laughs> I mean, if somebody wants to finance that, I say let's go. No, I mean, honestly, that's you're right. It's uh, like I wrote, it's, it's a very tough pill to swallow to see this when so much work was done uh, and done right by not only SF, but a lot of Americans. And the manner in which this is taking place is sloppy. It's unnecessary. I mean, sure, I guess Intel or whatever said, we don't think the Taliban can do this that quickly, but what about contingencies? You know, why not get people out before the withdrawal? I mean, all the questions, right? But yeah, it, it chaps my ass. I can't lie. And so, you know, there's a lot of... You know, these these kinds of things that I see, they're always kind of hard for me to see, and I don't know how to exactly deal with them, but everybody or lots of organizations start posting, hey, if veterans are feeling a certain way, do all of these things and contact a buddy. I mean, it's like, it's all necessary. It's, I get it, right? Because there are a lot of people with a lot of issues right now and What's your reaction to that? Like to our speaking kind of inside of our, our community. I mean, what's the, what's the right answer? How, how do we, how do we process this together? You talk about it, right? You talk about it, you know, and it, it does seem strange. You're right. Why is the U S army posting, Hey, go find some friends to talk to and do physical vigorous exercise. You don't hear that very often. do you? But yeah, I mean, it, it rings true, right? I mean, it's difficult to watch. We're seeing it together. Let's talk about it, right? So is it that, I mean, what's the role, what's America's role right now? Joe on the street, what, what's... Well, I mean, you know, what is to be done right now uh, is, is you're seeing this in real time. Maybe we saw it in Saigon as well. I think right here is a lesson. We're seeing a lesson, a lesson not to make in Iraq a lesson not to make 10 years down the road. What else can we do other than absorb the information and hopefully learn from it? I mean, when, when you kind of look at this, the hard part is that you, you guys have both been there. How bad is, like, let's just shoot straight, right? Like, how bad is this going to get? This idea that the Taliban went to Doha and said, you know, all of these sort of 
oh yeah, we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that. Right. And you know, you've got a lot of people out there trying to blame just the current administration and that's fine. You can say, Hey, this is sloppy. Thousand percent agree with you. Right. You go back in administration, different political party. I mean, you know, that's where the, that's where the deal was cut. You know, the Taliban were going to start killing all the insurgents for us. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the president before that different party than the one that came after, right? Like he was going to get us out and, you know, the first one always is going to be free and we're going to build nations, right? I mean, it's kind of like, look, there's a lot of, you know, blame to go around. It doesn't do a whole damn bit of good. It really doesn't. And it certainly doesn't do any good when it's trying to divide all of us and especially down party lines, which I'm just fucking sick of, right? Like if we just kind of say, hey, there's nothing good about this, but let's try to, let's try to listen to, to people like you and say, look, take, we got to take the long play and it sucks. The hard part is it's going to get really bad. It seems like it could. Is there any doubt? It definitely could. Do you have any doubts? I'm ready to, yeah, I'm preparing myself for, for worse. You know, obviously the cameras are on. So anything and everything that happens from this point is going to be bird's eye view. But, you know, the Taliban knows that too. And um, depending on, I guess, how they feel about the current administration, they might not want to test the system and see what happens if they screw it up. They might want to listen to um, the warnings. They might want to uh, abide by their agreements. We went there once. Does it mean they would never do it again? What are your thoughts, Rich? I agree with, with Aaron. And I think there's something important here that, that, that he said a couple of minutes ago, and that is that we've got to learn. We, we need to take this as a learning situation, not as a situation to point fingers at people and say, okay, he created the problem, she created the problem, they created the problem. That isn't going to solve anything. The problem exists, so how do we fix it? Or how do we not do it again? That's the most important part. You know, how do we move forward from this point? There'll be armchair quarterbacks around for probably 100 years or more that are going to talk about this and all the mistakes that were made or the good things that were done. And they, they can talk about that forever. They're, they'll be in the wind. But it's, it's talking to the people that, that were actually on the ground, looking at that and saying, okay, where do we go from here? What do we take? that we learned over the last 20 years, how do we move through this? How do we support those people that are still there? And I'm not saying militarily, but how do we support those people that received the freedoms, the women that were allowed to be educated and to educate, uh, the girls that were allowed to go to school, the, the people, the, just their freedom to move about, even though they're so tribalized that they, they move about very little in many cases other than the urban areas. But we still have to, we have to recognize who they are, how they live, what they do, and how can we support them in a positive way and move forward from here? How do we ensure as much as possible that the, the Taliban does what they said they're going to do? Are they going to do what they said or are they not? I mean, yeah, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, I mean, Rich, you're, you're sort of a, an expert in the art of reading human nature. <laughs> of, of especially of enemies. <laughs> well, you know, we also have to remember something else that there's, there's like two parts to the Taliban. There are those that are in charge. They're at Kabul now and they're, they're, they're on TV and they're being interviewed and they've kind of gotten to like that over the years. They've learned to enjoy that notoriety. 
that they're in charge. Then there's another whole group of Taliban that are out there in the tribal areas, in their, in their hotspots, and they're not as disciplined or as perhaps urbane is the word as the guys in Kabul. And they're going to be a lot more, a lot more violent and they're going to be problematic. They're going to be problematic for the Taliban and they're going to be problematic for Afghanistan and the rest of the world. And that's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, you already see the resistance growing. Oh yeah. And Aaron pointed out the people that they met, the, the Northern Alliance, what I call the true Mujahideen, not, not the Taliban guys. Everybody kind of starts to, to get them mixed up. When we went in in 84, 85, whenever it was, and we're providing stingers to them, we were working with the Mujahideen. And there was probably some Taliban in there, but they, they were not Taliban controlled or directed. They were Afghans who wanted a free Afghanistan. They wanted to get rid of the Soviets in particular. And we were there to assist them to do that. And they did it. The Soviets got their asses handed to them. But in all fairness, the Soviets did what we probably should have done. And that was they laid out a plan on how to leave systematically. And they did. They did not have the chaos that we're seeing right now. Now, they were a lot more violent and a lot more direct, but that's the way they do business. Okay, so Rich and Aaron chime in anytime. I mean, what is, how would you leave? If you said, hey, we're definitely going to give up Bagram, not sure that's a good idea, but we got a, we, we've got Bagram and we've got an embassy. I mean, how would you, how would you leave? I, I think what I would have done if I was the king of the world, I would have kept Bagram. It's a very critical uh, position in the world, not Afghanistan alone. But it it affects or can affect so much more area around it. And I would have kept the embassy and I would have had made it clear to the Taliban, we're going to keep those two things. We're going to, we're going to move as many people out as want to leave. And I would have come up with some plans to, to move people out. And that would have been my position at that point. Had it deteriorated from that, it would have been real simple. Take the airport and just flat tell the Taliban, don't come to the airport. Because if you come to the airport and cross my line, I will eliminate you, period. Yeah, so operating assumption is you can't have an embassy without the airport. True. Because on the airport, you can stay. I mean, this is what it is in, in Baghdad. You know, I mean, well, Biop, and then you got the green zone across the, across the way. But you could run it. I mean, the Baghdad International is huge. Bagram is huge. And you can, you have all the logistics, you have all the things that, that you need, and including the ability to, to send in troops like special forces soldiers who can link up anytime with local, local forces. You can flow people, you can flow humanitarian supplies, you can, you can flow anything in and out of a large air, air base like that. And that was, that was critical to me. When I heard that they had simply unlocked the gates to Bagram and walked away, I was just, I was astounded that American forces had actually done that or that they had been allowed to do that. That was just incredible to me. And that happened a couple of weeks ago. So Aaron, what's it been like for you the last, you know, 20 years since you were in Afghanistan and to sort of watch, you know, you know, you had the, the, the Afghan surge about, what was that 2009, 2010 or so? And, you know, since then it's been, 
kind of off the front page of the news. And then now it's obviously very, very much back in, in the front pages of the news, just as we build up to the 20 year anniversary of nine 11. And you just watch it's, it's, uh, how are you feeling about, I, let me reframe this. How are you feeling about the, the 20 year anniversary of nine 11 now? Cause I'm feeling differently. Yeah, that's, that's a whole nother thing. And you know, I'm, I'm going all the way back to my thought process on what Afghanistan was. Um, and that's kill and capture Osama bin Laden, prevent Taliban from creating training bases that could launch attacks at the United States. If that's where we started, and that's all we wanted to do. The mission ended when we killed bin Laden. However, that's not how it ended. It went on. As you said, Obama's initial thought process was a drawdown. It turned into a buildup. And then, like you said, kind of disappeared from the news. My son is in the infantry. It's kind of a side note. He's uh, 22 years old. And the last place I wanted him to be is um, the place that I started 20 years ago. You know, I, I definitely don't want to see him come home under a flag or with his legs blown off. So at some point, my belief and all along has been this has to end. Having said that, Rich is right. Once you have established a foothold, you keep it. So while you can dwindle down your military presence you know, significantly, you should always have a place that you don't have to fight to get back in again if you needed to get back in. So that is it's hard to watch. It's a fiasco. And here we are, what, definitely less than a month from, from 20 year anniversary of 9-11. So a lot of, a lot of feelings are coming out, you know, uh, feelings about 9-11 and feelings about what was this all for if all we were going to do was watch uh, some chaos on the news as the Taliban take back over. But you guys did talk about you know, the differences between the elite, the leadership of the Taliban who have the right things to say, and maybe even they have the right things in mind. And maybe the brutes down in the trenches who don't have exactly those things in mind. They'll be more violent. They'll act out on their own. But again, these people have had 20 years of freedom, 20 years. That's for some, that's a third of a lifetime, sometimes half a lifetime. Their lifespan is not enormous over there. They've had it. Maybe before when the Taliban came in in the 90s, things might have been different. Anytime societies come together, they have to blend a little, right? So it is my belief that they're not going to stand for the same level of oppression that they once were under as a people. I say this, but at the same time, we just gave the Taliban a shit ton of military equipment to try to prevent that from happening. But again, I still believe over time, they'll want their freedom. They'll, they'll, do what they have to do to get it. Is it safe to say, you know, hope for the best, expect the worst. And the worst in this case is a lot of repression. It's a lot of violence. We're, we're going to see it. We're going to hear about it. And then what's going to happen is we're, we're not going to hear about it. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's at some point drifting back into, you know, just one of those other countries that this stuff goes on. And, you know, I mean, the, the part for me is I thought the lesson of 9-11, even specific literally to Afghanistan was, if you have no network and you have no embassy and you have no diplomats and you have no spies and you have no soldiers in country, that's a really, really bad thing. Exactly. That's uh, that's a Somalia right there. So, you know, we have, we have maps and we certainly have Intel networks and we, we still know people 
in the country of Afghanistan, but we're just kind of, we're all speculating. And I, I look, I enjoy the perspective that you and, and so many other veterans of, of Operation Enduring Freedom are, are sharing. If you're, if you're out there listening, keep it up. If it's three in the morning and you can't sleep, write something. I'll listen to it. Tag me. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I could tell you felt better at the end, right? I mean, I could tell you had to, you had to process through, Hey, you're a reasonable guy and you've, you've seen, you've seen humanity and you know, what's going to happen, man. Like Taliban promises in Doha, right? If you're out there listening, the Taliban promises in Doha are not going to happen. Okay. It's not going to happen, right? Get real, get real. And we have to, we have to deal with that in our own ways. And it's, it's hardest for those that, that lost buddies or those that, you know, really have a, a really strong tie to that, to that country and, and to the people and to, to maybe a slight, only a slightly lesser degree, you know, those of us who had high hopes and it's just, it's really sad and it sucks and it's okay to acknowledge that. And people want to hear that stuff. So keep, keep it coming. You got any, you got anything in, in closing, Rich? No, I just, uh, Aaron pointed out, you know, if you have a foothold somewhere, it, it's kind of like a reverse cancer growing. Because if you've got a place like Bagram that you can flow people in and out of, the Afghan people will look at that as a touchstone and it becomes a psychological thing, not just for them, that there is still somebody there that, that could possibly support them, but it sends a signal to the rest of the world that there is a concern because what you just mentioned concerns me greatly, and that is Afghanistan is eventually going to fall out of the news because it isn't going to be newsworthy much anymore. Oh, you'll hear a few pieces from time to time, but it, you won't hear about all of the, the humanitarian issues that are occurring there because it just doesn't make news. It isn't flashy enough. It doesn't make a big enough boom. And I'm, I'm worried about that because if that goes away, then nobody's going to be looking at Afghanistan other than the Taliban and the poor people that live there. And that's a, a bad thing for the world, not, not for America. It is for America too, but it, for the world, it's bad to lose that perspective that there are people that need assistance out there. I mean, it's, go it's going to happen. I know. And that bothers me. I mean, greatly. Hey, you know, today, uh, you know, a, a female was not wearing a full burqa and she was going to, wanted to go to school and they, and they shot her. Yeah. Right. Or a little girl wanted to learn how to read and her dad was teaching her. And so they, they shot both of them. Like these things are going to yeah. happen and it's disgusting, man. Yeah. And it's really hard. Absolutely. And you know, it's okay to say that this sucks. It's okay to be mad about it. And you know, it's, it's just, that, that's just the reality. And so, you know, fuck man, like learn some lessons. I don't know. It, it sucks, but there is, there is always, there's always hope. And you wrote about it, Aaron, you, you talked about it with us here. We're, we're grateful for, for that perspective. And we do hope that we've inspired more Afghans to fight harder. You know, you taste something, you can't say you don't know what it tastes like. Right. You, you can't say that. And so God, let's hope, man. I'm buying hope today. And I, I think it's going to be messy, but so was, so was our story of hope. It's not, I'm not saying Afghanistan's America. I'm just saying people are people and hope springs eternal. And it certainly exists in the hearts of many of them over there. And Maybe that'll get us through some hard days. 
Absolutely. You know, but I mean, let's, we blame ourselves here and we're thinking, dang, but let's not forget this Afghan army was trained and equipped and they laid down their weapon. They didn't have to do that. Okay. So that's on them. And like you said, taste of hope, taste of freedom. Okay. We gave it to them. We gave it to them. Here, here's, here's your freedom on a silver platter. What's it worth to you? It's, it's not worth much if you don't earn it. So that's their, that's their task ahead. Earn it. Go get it. I mean, there's some real, there's some real warriors there. I mean, the commandos that, that were trained, I mean, they fought and bled with a lot of us soldiers for, for their own country and their own cause. And all I can do is trust that judgment on the ground. Some of them are consolidating up North, but you know, you can, you can trust the judgment on the ground of the guys who have been there and said they fought like lions beside them. And let, let's hope that they're, they're lying and waiting as, as you hope and, and predict. Time will tell. Yeah. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been uh, something that Rich and I both, you know, just wanting to kind of reach out and talk to some of the guys who are out there with their experience and, and what they've been through. And thanks for sharing your perspective. We, we appreciate your time today. And to everyone else out there, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Rich. Great job, Aaron. Thank you.